Uh, we're studying Romans 14, um, and I don't think we'll get that far, but it goes the chapter divisions go into chapter 15, actually, verse 13. If you remember from last week, which I hope you remember from last week, we're talking about, rather Paul is talking about and addressing the issue of Christian liberty. He doesn't use that, that actual phrase here. He does talk about that in 1 Corinthians. But the issue is Christians are disagreeing. This is in the church at Rome, which is, of course, the, uh, the, the church to whom he's writing this letter. But they're disagreeing over certain things. And the issue in Romans 14 is food. I'm just reviewing what we did last week just to make sure you're, you're, you're checking up with me and on top of this. But the issue is food. Now, to, for you and me today, that's not an issue. I don't think that's an issue in most of your churches. Back then, it was the issue of Jewish people and Gentile people, Greco-Roman people, coming to faith in Christ. They're bringing their traditions, backgrounds, and all that they used to do to, to the church situation. And you have the Jewish people come to faith in Christ. Their tradition is kosher food. You have the Greco-Roman people who had none of those restrictions. And as I think I mentioned last week, one of the most important delicacies of the first century Greco-Roman world was a, a very special kind of pork that was prepared. That was a delicacy. And they, they enriched that even in terms of their love feasts and the things they had, what you and I would call the uh, potluck dinners at church. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? And, yeah, so I mean, that's the kind of thing. So you have these Greco-Roman people bringing these delicacies of pork and other things to the potluck, and you have Jewish people who have their kosher food laws. They're not going to enjoy that. They are going to struggle with eating pork because of kosher laws. So what are they? They're eating vegetables. They're eating broccoli. Oh. Now I'm embellishing that a little bit. But that, <laughs> so you have that kind of, and it's really causing dissension, division, and disagreement. So the first principle we looked at last week, which starts with verse 1 and goes through verse 12, is a principle that Paul lays down. It's a transcultural principle. It applies at all times and all situations. Tolerate one another in these non-essentials. The principle of mutual tolerance. This is not a salvation issue. This is not an issue that keeps you out of heaven. This is not an issue that affects your relationship with God in, 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 a, in an intimate, personal sense. So it's a, it's a non-essential issue. So we dealt with that. The second point that he makes, the second principle that he makes, starts with verse 13 and goes through verse 23. And that principle can be stated this, stated like this. Don't cause your brother or sister in Christ to stumble. And so what I did up here is I, I tried to take some of the things that Paul is talking about and put them into some very important principles for you and me today. Because as believers, we are going to disagree on the non-essentials. That's a, that's a given. And you can get it down to the point of a marriage. Husband and wife come to a marriage situation, they're going to disagree on things. So as a couple that's interested in sustaining the marriage, you better have a plan on how you're going to deal with disagreements. Or those disagreements are going to produce divorce. And again, I'm, what I'm talking about, are not a, I, I told you, I'm pretty sure I did. When I got married, I've been married probably 53 and a half years. The first year of our marriage, there were two major issues in our relationship. Are we going to put the lid on the toothpaste tube 
And are we going to put the toilet seat up or down? That was an issue. Now, I hope you agree that is not an issue, or not issues, that should lead to divorce. But we had to settle how we're going to deal with that. Well, for 53 years and one month, it was an issue for, for 50 years and one month, always the lid is on the toothpaste, and always the toilet seat is down. You know who won that one? <laughs> Thank you, Fred. That's, that's correct. All right. So you may disagree on non-essentials. That is a given. I mean, I have been, you know, my main minister is an academic minister for most of my adult life since I came to Christ, but I was in the church at all those years, and I'm very much involved in the church now. And that's, it drives me crazy. Honestly, it drives me crazy. Some of the things that people disagree about, it doesn't have anything to do with anything of importance, but they disagree. So, it is a, it's a given of life, it seems to me. It's a given of life that you should expect in relationships that you're going to disagree about things. Now, again, that, that, that's why I underline it. We're talking about non-essentials. We're not talking about doctrine. We're not talking about theology. We're not talking about salvation issues. We're talking about non-essentials. The non-essential here was a food issue. Second, seek to understand your brother or sister in Christ. Now, for the Greco-Roman person who enjoys the delicacies of pork, they have to seek to understand why their Jewish brothers and sisters who come to faith in Christ and are turning their backs on 1,500 years of tradition, why they're seeing the issue the way they're seeing it. Not always to agree, you seek to understand. Let's bring it down again to the level of marriage. As a husband, first Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Peter issues this directive to men. Seek to understand your wife. He doesn't say that to the wife. He says that to the husband. Seek to understand your wife. <laughs> Very easy assignment. I mean, I've been married to, to my wife, as I said, you know, 15 and a half years. I've, I've been through all, I've been through all kinds of infertility issues with her, which was 11 years. It was a very difficult time. Then we had children, so we raised our kids together, two of them. Then I, I've been through menopause with her. I've been through her heart condition and her autoimmune disease. And I'm 53 and a half years, I still haven't figured her out. Plus, now she's through that now, but a woman goes through a monthly cycle. And those of you who are married probably remember that that monthly cycle affects her emotions and affects how she's going to respond to you, affects when you come home for work, and it may affect the mood she's in that day. So you just have to understand that. You have to be a student. I, I studied under a man who said, great, great director. The moment you say, I do, you now become a student of that woman. You have to learn what makes her what makes her smile, what makes her sad. You have to learn, learn her emotional cycle. You have to learn what is she really interested in. More importantly, what are you really interested in that she may not be interested in? What are you going to do when she's not interested in what you're interested in? I mean, it's those kinds of things. Because if you're not, if you're not going to be, be committed to that, that marriage is probably going to last very long. That is the same thing in relationship between believers. Seek to understand 
why that person is seeing that whatever the issue is, seeing it differently than you do. Because if love is the mark of the church, that's what love demands. You don't agree with me? You're my enemy. That's really not the way a Christian should respond. I want to understand why you don't see it. Whether you directly ask that question or not, you're just trying to understand. That's, in a, in a very real sense, that's the quality of the character trait of empathy. I, I, and that's not a new word to you. Is that, that's the quality of empathy. You're really trying to understand why that person sees it that way. And then thirdly, the, which I think is so crucial, you're always seeking unity. And ultimately, Paul, ultimately Paul is going to say the glory of God. Okay, now, I don't always do this, but I did it here because I think this is, this is so important. Let's now go to the text and flesh out what these principles that I've listed up here in verse 23, uh, verse 13 through 23. Therefore, now I can't remember if we got into this paragraph or not last week, so I'm going to start as if we didn't. Therefore, based on what he's just said in the first 12 verses about seek to tolerate the differences in the non-moral areas of life, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. There's a, not be judgmental. Some people have the spiritual gift of criticism, the spiritual gift of judging one another. That's a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that. But, I mean, it, it seems that that's all. And there's just a mere critical spirit about everything. Paul's saying, don't pass judgment on one another. Again, we're talking about these non-moral, non-essential issues. But rather, decide to never put a stumbling block, the Greek word is scandalon, or hindrance, you could translate that obstacle, in the way of a brother. So whatever you're going to do, however you're going to react, whatever you're going to say, make sure that does not become a stumbling block to them. A scandalous thing to them, or an obstacle in their journey with the Lord. Now, I'm pretty sure we did go over this, but I want to do it again. Verse 14, I put it as a parenthesis because it's like a mini bunny trail. Paul said, oh, by the way, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So, again, I'm hoping you follow what he's saying because Paul was a Jew who came to know Christ on the Damascus Road he spent 13 years unpacking his old worldview, repacking it with the truth of Christ the Messiah, and he's ready for the first missionary journey. And so as he's saying, I have come to understand something this side of the cross, that all the kosher food laws, all the, all the aspects of the Jewish code that was in Leviticus has been fulfilled, and it's no longer operative. Therefore, there's nothing unclean in and of itself. Innately, there's nothing unclean. Now, that's an important, that's a very important proposition for a Jewish person in the first century to embrace. Because it's the same thing the Apostle Peter had to learn. We, we studied that year, a couple years ago in Acts chapter 10, 
when he's in Joppa and Simon the Tanner's up on his roof and he sees this vision. Remember that? And God says to him, I want you to eat those unclean things. Yes, I can't. I'm a Jew. And he said, no, you've got to understand the new covenant is dawn. A whole new order. It's been fulfilled. So now I want you to start ministering to Gentiles. That's the very next thing that happened. So Paul was saying the same thing that Peter. So he just, it's a bunny tray. He just wanted to, here's, here's what I believe based on what Christ has done. Now verse 15. For if your brother, because now he's elaborating on how do you cause someone to stumble? How do you create an obstacle? Now he explains it in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That's a declaration of something. If you understand you're disagreeing about certain food things, you're seeking to understand, and you're promoting unity in God's glory. If your brother or sister in Christ is grieved by what you're doing in these non-essential things, in this case the food, you're no longer walking in love. You're demanding your rights. You're pounding the table for your rights. I can eat anything I want this side of the cross. But you have a Jewish brother who has 1,500 years of tradition, and they're struggling with you eating this, and they're choosing to eat vegetables at the love feast, the church potluck supper. And you're not sensitive to that. You're not concerned about that. You could care less about that. Paul says you're not walking in love. And you know the word love there is agape. It's that self-sacrificing, other-centered love. You are more concerned about yourself than you are your brother. In a marriage, if you're more concerned about yourself and demanding your rights as a husband, having no concern whatsoever to your wife and what her concerns are, you're not loving her as Christ loved the church. I'm using the word from Ephesians 5. So what's his, what's his, what's his point? Middle of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's a strong word, but he's saying, don't you understand that you're not being sensitive? You're, you're not showing concern and love so that you don't create a stumbling block here? This becomes a gospel issue. This becomes an issue of the gospel. You, 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 you don't want to hurt what Christ started in this person's life. So here's the conclusion. Do not let what you regard as good He's spoken of as evil. Here, you have to really follow his logic here. What you regard as good food. I can eat anything because the kosher food laws have been fought. That's right. But if your brother or sister in Christ doesn't see it that way yet, they're a new believer, they're weak in their faith, and they're still struggling with, with turning their back on 1,500 years of tradition, and your pain, something that is good has actually become something that's evil. It's being spoken. Oh. So I have to be really sensitive. Yes, you do. Because as Americans, we demand our rights. 
And Paul says, you have those rights. You absolutely do. And I'm not talking about political rights. You know what I'm talking about, the context of Christian liberty. Sometimes you don't demand them. Sometimes you temporarily set them aside for the sake of your weaker brother. Now, when you say set them aside, Jim, what lights do you have to Well, set them aside in the sense that that's not your primary concern now. Temporarily, not necessarily permanently, you set them aside. I'm not going to demand my rights. I'll eat vegetables with you. I won't bring my delicacy of special cooked pork to the next potluck supper. I'll bring a plate of vegetables from High V, which is a horrible thought, but that's what I'll bring. <laughs> because that I know you and eat, and I can eat together. Now, Paul talks about this later, or I shouldn't say later, but in another passage in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, where he says part of your responsibility, too, as a believer who's strong, you, you understand things, you walk with the Lord longer, is to help your weaker brother come along to the faith, too. Come along to understand, on that journey, to understand the breadth of their liberty in Christ. That's what's going to happen in, in terms of this specific situation between Jew and Gentile. So, it's Fred, you're, you're setting that aside temporarily. Okay, I'm not, I understand I have the freedom to eat pork. Absolutely you do. And you understand that correctly. But perhaps for the sake of your brother, you're willing to set that aside and be sensitive to what is of concern to them. And I used as kind of a silly illustration, you'd be willing to eat vegetables for a couple potluck suppers as you sit next to that brother and sister in Christ and so on. Does that make sense? Then what he does, then look, then he rises above in the next verse, verse seven. He rises above and gives us a huge, big macro observation. You could translate, it's a garden, Greek. you could translate that because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. So he rises and says, no, wait a minute. I want to remind you something, because these issues, these issues are not that you're focused on. These issues aren't kingdom issues. Because the kingdom is not about what you eat and drink. That's not what it's about. It's about the core values and virtues of God, righteousness, peace, and joy. And he adds in the Holy Spirit, which reminds us that these are things the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. That's God's priority. So if you're seeking unity and you're seeking God's glories and you've got kingdom values in mind, and kingdom values are not about what you eat and what you drink. Kingdom values about righteousness, peace, and joy. And it's just, it's a fabulous reminder. It's a fabulous reminder. And so when you have two Christians on a committee disagreeing over the color of, next, of the carpet they're going to renovate the section of their church, and they're really disputing all that, the pastor steps in. But the kingdom of God is not about the color of carpet. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. And everybody says, amen. Okay, if that's true, then shouldn't that affect how we view with the color of carpet issue? You see how you can apply this? You can apply what Paul is saying to almost any area 
about which Christians disagree in the non-essential. What are the kingdom values of God? Righteousness, peace, joy. Knock off your stupid disagreements. That's not in the Bible. That's an Ekman paraphrase of what he's saying. And then you all like, you know, he's really um, kind of suggesting. We step back and say, you know, he's really right. And I, I think probably some in Rome, when they read this, say, you know, he's really right. We are burning brain cells and wasting a lot of energy on things that aren't eternally significant. They really aren't that important in terms of the kingdom. Boy, I could make so many applications of this, but I'm not <laughs> going to. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. All right, now you're, you're shifting in. My, my goal is to serve the Lord. And to serve the Lord, that's what God's interested. That's what seeks the, excuse me, that's what gains the approval of men because it promotes unity, peace. So then, summarizing again, tying it all together. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You could translate that for mutual edification. So in a relationship, what, what are our priorities? Peace and edification. The color of carpet is not an edifying issue. It can divide, but that's not an edifying issue. So you seek what builds up. Because the opposite of building up of edification is what tears down. You don't want that. So it's just, it's just, oh. I mean, it's just, this is, this is so wise in its counsel to us. And it's applicable in the 21st century as it was in the first century when, in this context, the issue was food at the potluck suppers of the church in Rome. You can flip over to 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, where the same exact teaching, but in a different context that the church was dealing with in Corinth. Or you can bring it into the 21st century. And if you think about five minutes on this, you can make a list of things you've observed or perhaps you have even been involved in that reminds you, you know, these things aren't really that essential in terms of eternity, in terms of kingdom values. So what can I do to promote unity in the glory of God in these situations? Jesus says in, in one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. When Jesus uttered those words in the Sermon on the Mount, he very much had the Hebrew word of shalom in mind. Blessed are the shalom makers. And the question is always, are you, are you the person that creates tension in a committee or in a group? You walk into the room, oh, no, Ekman's here. All he does is create disagreement, division, dysfunction, and we end up hating each other. Get him off the committee. Or are you a person that promotes shalom, peace, and unity? Because Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the people who promote unity. As with a marriage, as with friendships that are meaningful in our lives, sometimes we agree to disagree in these non-essentials. 
and don't allow it to become an obstacle in our in our relationship with our wife, as a friend, and and now because we're all I'm the oldest man in the room, but we're all older, even with our children. Because maybe you have noticed if you have children, your children don't always see things the way you want them to see. Even after they're married and have their own kids, they're not quite seeing it. And you're we're not seeing it the right way. Well, it may or may not be true, but let them work through it. I don't know how your kids are, but the moment I start getting up on the pulpit and issuing pronouncements as their father, and they're 38 and 34, immediately they shut down. Dad, thank you. That's good. Yep. Well, and the second I say it, they forget it. I'm being a little bit silly and, and, and humorous here. And it's sometimes that kids do. Yeah, that was really good advice you gave me 14 years ago. I'm sorry I didn't follow it. That's rare, but sometimes I'll say that. <laughs> but even now, you know, my wife always says, you know, honey, I probably shouldn't say that to Joanna, should I? When she's giving her some kind of major advice, if she asks for it, absolutely. But don't necessarily volunteer. Because Joanna, the moment she was born, was strong-willed. Absolutely. When Dobson wrote his book, The Strong-Willed Child, he followed my daughter around took notes and then wrote his book. And so, Joanna, I still think she's 34 years old. You give her a piece of advice. She, her back arches. You watch her body language. Oh, man, I shouldn't have said that. That's just the way kids are. Do you understand it? All right. Now, verse 20 through 23, he brings a conclusion to this. Are you all with me? I mean, it, what, this is marvelous truth for us. Such important wisdom for us. I think it is. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What does he mean by that? In this person's life, don't interrupt the process of sanctification that God is working on. Don't make your selfish, self-centered demand for rights impact that person's sanctification. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. He's repeating the, the point. Yes, you understand that everything that God has created is good and for our enjoyment. That's one of the major themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. But the Jewish person who's coming out of there, they're not going to see it that way. They're still struggling with the kosher issues. Don't make it a big issue. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Surrender it for a while. Give it up. The faith that you have keep you keep between yourself and God. Excuse me, I stumbled over that. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. What does he mean by faith here? It's not saving faith. It's the sustaining faith and the convictions that you develop. You have the conviction centered in God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that everything in and of itself is good. It can be an instrument for terrible, egregious ungodliness. So food, do you have that conviction? Keep it to yourself. At this point, in dealing with that Jewish brother or sister dealing with the kosher issues. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Because whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever your convictions are about these things, follow those convictions. But sometimes you keep them, you keep them between you and God, depending on the context. Does that make sense? Isn't our scripture that says stay with the new bodies is all we Yes. I think that's to recognize his bodies as well as maybe your convictions bite your tongue because yes. God's working on them. Yes. Passed that sign some time ago, but he has to. So we don't all develop at the same. That's exactly right. And I think if if I can take what Paul is saying here and teaching us here, and and, and extrapolate from it another important principle. When we develop. And again, it's always important to remember the context of this is non-essentials of the faith. We develop certain convictions about things. We're going to do this. We're not going to do this. And it's not essential. If I universalize them for every Christian, what have I become? I become like a Pharisee. I become a legalist. I, I become someone, I am going to tell you to, 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 down to the letter of the law, the, the grid that you must follow for sanctification. And here, here they are. Number one, no Christian ever goes to a movie. <laughs> Number two, no Christian ever has playing cards in their house. Number three, no Christian ever drinks any alcoholic beverage. Number three. Number four. I already did three, four. didn't I? Yeah. And I mean, you, can, you start, okay, this is what Paul's saying. You have convictions? that are rooted in your understanding of the process of sanctification. You, you have your strategy for all of this? Good. But don't bind every Christian's conscience with your convictions. Keep it between you and God. It's so important you have that strategy. And it's so important that this, this is the strategy that you have seen works in your life. That my whole background is such that I just, I cannot comfortably go into a movie theater because the temptations of that are going to lead me back into my life. Great, but don't universalize that for a Christian. You see, that's what he's saying here. God tells us something Yeah, and it can be that, very much so. Yeah, I mean, that, but the one thing we don't want to do is say, no Christian should ever have one of these. You, we, I do not have the right to bind your conscience. You can see I have one of these, but you, you see what I'm saying? To bind your conscience on my conviction, whatever they are. So we work through that, but we don't universalize it for every Christian. Because if you universalize it for every Christian, you become a modern-day Pharisee. And Jesus' words were harshest for the, the Pharisee. Because I had somebody like that and tell them the reason, you know. They were, you know, I used to do that and here's what happened to me. So, you know, 
can do what you want, but you're going to have a problem. It's like a lot of tools. Yeah. There are so many things I can do with my phone that can do airline reservations, pay bills. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many things I don't have to watch it, yeah. but it is a, to me, extremely useful. But then, as far as I'm concerned, I'm strong enough to handle those temptations. It's just like credit card. I use a credit card. I pay it off every month. But, yeah, it, but the advantage of it outweighs the risk. I just discipline myself. It, let me, I've talked about this. Let me interject here an important principle Paul lays down for us. In, it's in 1 Corinthians 8 and in 1 Corinthians 10. I have the liberty to do things in my life, but I will not be mastered by anything. So do you have the freedom to have a phone? Yes, and as Bill suggested some of the things we can do. You can even order a Starbucks cup of coffee on your phone. <laughs> really a righteous act. Anyway, I'm being so dumb. But it can master you. It's the same, like, you know, use a credit card. A credit card is a wonderful tool if you manage it well. But it can master you. It can control you. Paul says, I will not be controlled by anything. I, I have used that in my own life and with my kids when they were growing up over and over again. We are going to allow you to do this or use this, but do not let it master you. I will trust you as long as I can trust you. But the moment you break your trust, my trust, that's going to come to an end for a period of time, whatever. Let me comment this a minute, because there are a group, one, I'll bring up Ramsey, who's totally adamant about having credit. I know. But to me, that then doesn't teach people to be the master. That's right. And if you don't learn to be the master on something, you can't learn to be the master all, on All things in our lives, uh, we face that issue. Am I going to allow this to control and master me, or am I going to use it as a tool that I master and control? It's just like a hammer. Well, yeah. I mean, it's. I I know. I I've always chafed a little bit at Ramsey's absolute there, right? Because I I do not think that's necessarily the right advice to give to people as an absolute. No Christian should ever have a credit card. I'm not comfortable setting that down as a standard. But you know. If you if that's your weakness and that's the only way you can yeah, handle then don't get a credit card. But don't make me yes. suffer. And and this is what this is part of what you get. Don't make me feel guilty for something that you have made a decision about. And this is what Paul's talking about in this whole context. Because you see what you could do. This is the gift of, here's the here's the Greco-Roman Christians coming to faith in Christ and and make the Jewish people who've chosen to eat the vegetables at the potluck supper feel really guilty and really bad. Oh, my goodness, I'm that far from the kingdom? That's not the right way for you to approach that. You know their conditions. You know their struggle. You know Love them. Bring them along. And maybe throughout the rest of their whole life, they'll never eat pork. Is that a kingdom issue? No. What did he say in verse 17? Kingdom values are not about food. Kingdom values are righteousness, peace, and joy. If I'm guided by that, then this is why rarely will I ever share my convictions about my strategy for holiness in my life. 
what I do and don't do, what I read and don't read, what I watch, I'm not going to tell you all that. When I was in, 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 in an academic ministry, I had parents constantly call me. I mean this or email me. Should I, should I let my teenagers read the Harry Potter books? I, I, probably had, I did some perspectives on that years ago. And, you know, what was my answer to that? This was my standard answer. I'm not going to bind your conscience with my convictions. You have to work out that strategy for holiness in your family. And what you decide is not evil or it's not righteous. It's what you think you need to do as a parent. Now, I had one mother says, I let my kids get Pokemon cards. Oh, good night. What a kingdom issue. You know, it's just that my, my answer is the same thing. I am not going to bind your conscience with my convictions. That's not my responsibility. Well, she has your advice, your opinion. I just gave it to him. Yeah, but and there's no reason why. But see, but the, the and I don't disagree with you there. But it depends. It depends on the level, the level of my friendship and the level of of my relationship with that person. Yes. If if it's a real close friend who's really struggling, so Jim, what do you do in this area? In that kind of a context, I'll share with them a little bit. Yeah. But I'm not going to from the pulpit. Because the moment I do those kinds of things, I'm setting it up almost like a modern-day Pharisee, and that is the last thing I want to be. I want people to wrestle through these issues on their own and develop the convictions and the strategies because each one of us is different. We come from different backgrounds with different baggage. And so it's what Paul is trying to do, and I hope it's coming out. That's why I put it this way and we looked at it. Because none of this is specifically said in the scripture that we study. These are the things you draw out. This is the transcultural principle. Expect disagreement on non-essentials. Seek to understand that person, why they are looking at it, and then seek the unity in God's glory. Kingdom values. Kingdom values. It's 12.30. All right. Let's do the third principle. In, uh, in uh, I think we can do this. It's in the first six verses of chapter 15. Here's the principle. The strong should help the weak. And this doesn't have anything to do with pressing, you know, a 100-pound weight. That's not what it's about. The strong are those who are mature in Christ, and understand the depths of the Christian liberty. The weak are those, in most cases, that are young in the faith, immature in the faith, and they're, they're just in the process of the beginning of sanctification. They don't see things the way... So, so what? Here's, here's the strong saying. Well, we are the elite spiritual one. We know the best. And if you don't see it our way, you are not a mature Christian. Is that the message we want to send? No. The message you want to send is working out this, I'm here to serve you to become mature in Christ. Let's do this together. We who are strong, I'm reading from verse 1. We who are strong, I've talked about what that means, have an obligation. That's an ethical word. Ethical obligation. A moral obligation before the Lord to bear with the failings of the weak 
and not to please ourselves. Not to please ourselves is a selfish, self-centered approach to your relationship. I want to bear with. And that I read from the ESV translation, and, and I mean, that's, that's okay. But to bear with means literally to come alongside and help the weak who's stumbling over these issues. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So whose good are you seeking? His good. What's the example? Who's the model for us? Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. I just, that's amazing how some of these, Paul reaches back into Psalm 69, verse 9, and pulls that verse out. But when you understand, well, okay, the reproaches of those who reproach me, reproach you, fell on me. For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might find hope. Oh. Don't look at verse. Yeah, that is such an important verse. Now, Paul's writing this, you know, approximately A.D. 57 or so. He's saying something when almost all of the references he had were the Old Testament text. That's the only book he had, yeah. Yeah, for you and me, we've got 66 books, the full revelation of God. So whatever is written for in days is written for instruction. Written for instruction. Written for instruction. What does that imply that we're going to seek what this book has to instruct us about, pardon the dangling preposition there. What, what the scriptures have to say is worthwhile, our studying, so we can seek its instruction. That through endurance, through encouragement of scripture, that the scriptures teach us endurance, teach us perseverance, teach us to hang in there, and encouragement. The scriptures encourage us, stimulate us, energize us to keep going. And what's the result? Hope. Please note, it doesn't say Joel Osteen. It doesn't say Creflo Dollar. It doesn't say Chuck Swindoll. It doesn't say, I'm just using kind of figures you see on television. It's the instruction of Scripture. It enables us to persevere, enables us to be encouraged, but the end result is hope. Jim, the Holy Spirit, too, helps us understand the Scriptures, doesn't it? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit enables us to understand His Word and to uh, the first Corinthians 2, it's a very important passage to welcome and embrace the truth. 
not only to understand it, but to embrace it. Because Fred, there's a big under, there's a big difference between understanding and embracing. An unbeliever can understand the Bible, but they may not embrace it as truth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, that's one of the things the Holy Spirit does too. Not only enable us to understand it, but to embrace it and welcome it as truth. I mean, this this verse is verse four is really important verse because we seek the endurance, perseverance. We seek the encouragement through God's word. Now, I, Chuck Swindoll can preach faithfully God's word, and we understand it and we apply it and all that. But it's the Holy Spirit who's working, which is such an encouragement. So may the God of endurance and encouragement. Now, he's using the same words that come from Scripture. So now may the God of endurance and encouragement, the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. So from Scripture comes persevering, enduring, and encouragement, which produces hope. Therefore, the end result should be harmony with one another. Unity. We get along in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I wrote this. We seek unity in God's glory. The Lord is never pleased when his children are fighting with one another. The Lord is pleased when his when his children who uh Sorry, I just want to check that this is something really important. Well, it is sort of important, but I'll wait. From my daughter, but I can wait. Um, oh, I know what I was going to say. Verse 5 and verse 6. Can, can you look at that with me as a prayer? It's almost like Paul says, okay, now I've been teaching. Time out. We're now going to pray. And here's his prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm serious. I think that's a prayer. It's like, Paul, I'm teaching. You know, he, he's, he's using his PowerPoint slides. He's got everything mastered. He's got his notes all in order. Everybody has printed notes. Everybody's with it. Time out. We're going to pray now. Based on everything I've been saying, Paul, this is Paul, let's pray. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another. That's the whole point of this. In accord with Christ Jesus, he's the standard. And together, may glorify with one voice, unity, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. Fantastic stuff. I really I really want believers in the 21st century to live like this. This is not an original thought with me. I believe the Church of Jesus Christ can show the world how to disagree. By promoting unity and the glory of God. We will disagree in these non-essentials. 
Again, remember that the context is so important. We're not talking about doctrine here. We're not talking about the theology of our faith. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about these non-essentials. We should be able to show the world how to disagree in an honoring way before the Lord. I am not sure we're doing a real good job of that. All right. There's one more thing to do in this larger topic of Christian liberty. It's verse 7 through 13 of chapter 15. And it, it's, it is another principle. I guess I'll, I'll float it out as that. The principle of mutual acceptance. The principle of mutual acceptance. This is in the context, and, and, and that's, I, I think it can, we can make it a very important application in, in 21st century, but the context here, and we've talked about this a number of times, is Jew and Gentile in the church, and all the differences that they bring, all the baggage and everything they bring. This is what he's pleading for. Verse 7, therefore, with one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, for I tell you that Christ became, now he's going to explain what this looks like. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So notice he's got the two groups in mind here. Who are the circumcised? The Jews, the Gentiles, in verse 9. Now, let's take verse 8 and verse 9 apart. Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcised. The Greek word for servant is diakonos. We've got a word deacon from that. Became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. All right, Christ, and, and notice the word Christ there. That's, that's the Greek word for Messiah. So Messiah shows up to the Jews to confirm something. What's he confirming? The promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenantal promises. Messiah is the Messiah of Israel. So this is, not, this is in a new concept. It's all over the, the New Testament. But Christ, Jesus shows up as the Messiah, and his, his ministry is with the Jews initially, confirm what God has promised to them. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. That's all confirmed by Jesus' ministry. Now the question is, are they going to accept that? And we've talked about, you know, at, many did, but many did not. But then he adds, a second purpose is not only to confirm all the covenantal promises God made, but a second purpose is that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Because the message of the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, too. Salvation is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles too. And Jesus will confirm that too, because what does he keep saying? 
He goes way up to Caesarea Philippi. He goes way up to Tyre and Sidon. He, he leads a number of Gentiles. He's talking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And all those he keeps saying to them, this gospel is for you too. And then what Paul does, and this is kind of back to what we saw in verse 4, he has a whole bunch of Old Testament quotes here. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing in your name, 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty. And again, from Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, praise the Lord, you Gentiles. Let all peoples extol him, Psalm 117, verse 1. And then finally, verse 12 from Isaiah 11, verse 10, the root of Jesse will come. Even when he arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So what did Paul just do? He went back into the Old Testament, grabbed four Old Testament texts. And what's the key word in all four texts? Gentiles. That this message is for the Gentiles too. And it's not some new truth that all of a sudden showed up. That's always been the plan. And so, again, I mean, it's just, it's, it's marvelous how Paul understood the unity of God's word. And he had that incredible ability under the inspiration of the Spirit to go back into the Old Testament and grab those right texts and fit them in. See, this is God's plan all along. So may the God of hope, verse 13, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, may, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Jew and Gentile. Because the plan involves both. Don't you marvel at the constancy, consistency of God's plan? He's working his plan. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but aren't you excited that you're a part of the plan? Yeah. I mean, that's that's what's a thrill about all of this. Especially not me and Jesus. Well, <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, well, we are, as we studied earlier in this book, we are grafted into the covenant tree of blessing. And that's about the Old Testament when, when back in the uh, through Moses, God laid out the laws for living, you know, life, religious, civil life. One of the common threads there, it's not going to notice all, but the same laws apply to you as the soldier with you. The guy who's not a Jew yeah. has to be with you. You're the same, he's the same as you, as far as I'm concerned. The laws are the same. Yeah, and that was it. That was an important message for the Jews to understand. That's right. All right, I'm going to have to quit here. Now, you probably noticed if you've looked at your Bible recently, we're just about done with Romans. Okay? I suspect, although I never know with this class because you always have so many questions, but I suspect next week we might finish the book.
but we're going to get very close to it. I think we had agreed on Ecclesiastes. Isn't that what we agreed on? You, I made, did, you made the statement that that's what we Oh, did I? Okay, <laughs> I agreed. You well, I, I wanted you to have the illusion that you are with my decision. <laughs> but I just finished all the notes. Um, actually, yesterday I was working in my office, so I just finished updating all the notes in Ecclesiastes. So I will probably send those out to, to Fred next week. Um, and we don't necessarily have to get them out, but I have them all done because we are nearing the end of this book. Because you know, the rest of the book is not real difficult to follow what he's doing, and the application of it is pretty easy. And chapter 16 is just filled with dozens of names. And I'm just going to comment on some of those names because it's really fascinating. This is church in Rome. I think we can identify five house churches in chapter 16 and see who the leaders are. And it's really a, it's a, it's a fun thing to try to identify who those leaders are. Uh, they're, 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 some are very powerful, important people. And it's, it's just really a fascinating thing to study. But we're nearing the end. What do you want to pick up? Uh, verse 14. 14. Yeah. We'll start with verse 14. Actually. But now listen, I, I want you all to have a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy your day tomorrow. Set aside all food laws. All restrictions, don't look at your cholesterol, don't look at your hemoglobin, don't look at your glucose, indulge. And the next day, you'll want to crash diet and watch what you're doing. That's what I told Peggy I'm going to do tomorrow. She said, no, honey, you're only going to allow, this is what she said to me as I'm walking out the door. This is what she said to me because she's cooking a pumpkin pie as I was getting me to leave. You can only have one piece of pumpkin pie tomorrow. <laughs> Make it a big one, Jim. <laughs> so pray for me as I have to go through this enormous trial in my life. I'm on this new diet. Sacrifice for Jesus. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Joe. I'll look at Fred. I'm in the sympathy there. <laughs> Joe just said to me, I'm sacrificing for Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. I really am just kidding. Well, listen, but please have a great Thanksgiving. I hope it'll be a fun day for you. Father, we thank you for, uh, I'm glad we got this finished. I, I hate to divide these sections into units. I'm so glad this, this section on Christian liberty is such an important section. It has such relevance and applicational power for us today. And I pray for our churches. I pray for the North American church, which is in such disarray. And, and there's so many difficulties that we can practice what we preach, that we can live what Paul is saying. That we are going to disagree in non-essentials is a given we need to seek out of love and, and mercy to understand those with whom we disagree. But always seeking unity, always seeking the glory of God. So help us in, in all the different areas of our churches to live this. This is such an important message to the world. And I pray for the men here, here and those online. May tomorrow, day of Thanksgiving, be a special day. Thank you. We live in a country where there's still a national day of Thanksgiving. Many people will not give you one thought tomorrow, but we who love you, we want to be certain next uh, tomorrow that during the day, whether it's formally or just on our own, we take time to just thank you. Thankfulness and gratefulness is a sign of the Spirit in our lives. May we be men of thanks, men of gratefulness for what you've done. May we be men of faith who represent you well in this world. We trust this to you in your Son's name. Amen. See you next week.